Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Resilience. We're Australians. Should know about resilience. Hard yakka, right? The outback, clearly. Very outback, me. Extremely city hands. Like, this is, this is just the life I live. I remember once I went before a, a group of pastors and they were trying to work out what the best space would be for me to do ministry in. And they said, Mike, have you ever considered doing ministry in the country? And I just held up my hands and I went, no, no, I haven't. These are the softest city hands you will ever see. I get calluses from using a pen, you know. Give, give me a softer pen. No, don't put me in the country. God bless the country, but there are plenty more people better equipped to reach the country than me. Put me in the city. Give me a flat white. I will be happy. <laughs> it's going to be fine. But if you're thinking about resilience, or at least when I'm thinking about resilience, I think about great Australian traditions. I think about great South Aussie traditions like jetty jumping. Who's been jetty jumping before? Just a show of hands. The rest of you, I want your citizenship checked because it should be mandatory for all people as teenagers to try jetty jumping at least once. And because I'm a South Australian and a good, safe father, I have got my children to try this already. <laughs> because I've got to get sermon stories somewhere. And, and so I took my kids to Streaky Bay. We've got family over there, beautiful part of the world. And they've got a, a pool, like a, an ocean pool. They've just cut a part of the ocean, put a fence around it so it's safe. And, uh, and there's a bit of a jetty over it as well as some steps. And my brother-in-law, who lives in Streaky Bay, was like, we've got to go jetty jumping. I'm like, this is the best idea. Um, and my older two kids, Noah was a bit too young at the time, my older two kids were like, yeah, yeah, we want to give it a crack. And frankly, I was surprised. But I was like, okay, yeah, definitely. It's safe. You'll love it. Like, why do you keep saying it's safe? Don't worry about it. It's safe. And so they come to the jetty. And um, my daughter's like, okay, she psychs herself up, jumps in, her uncle's there, she, she jumps in safely, her uncle sort of half catches her just to soften the blow a bit, beautiful, she's like, I just jumped off a jetty, I am a hero, I'm like, yes you are, you're doing great, and my son Charlie was next, and he's like, alright, well I, if she can do that, I've got this easily, I was like, okay, that's a recipe for disaster, so Charlie gears up, and he runs in, and then he starts to do what I would call a half suey. Is everyone familiar with the suey? Right? The suey is a jetty jumping style where you pull your knees and elbows back behind you and you get horizontal to the water. Like it's, it's deliberately designed to be as frightening as possible. And then at the last minute, you pull your knees and your elbows in. I'm, by the way, I'm genuinely stunned how few people know about the intricacies of jetty jumping, but <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. I'll pray for you. And, you pull your knees and elbows in at the last minute, so what hits the water is your knees and elbows, and you're fine. Charlie did not intend to do a suey. He just kind of went horizontal, belly down towards the water from a couple of metres up in the air. Now, I don't know if you've ever hit flat on the water before. I don't recommend it. And so Charlie's belly, boom! Like, his uncle was there to catch him, but when somebody's falling at that speed, you, you're only slowing them down. You're not stopping them. And so Charlie, bang, belly first on the water. There were tears. There was a pink, pink belly. And my poor boy swore never to do it again. I was like, no, no, I don't want my son scarred from jetty jumping. It's too good. It's too Australian. I can't have him not be jetty jumping. So a couple of years later, we're back at Streaky Bay. Here's Charlie again. I'm like, bud, you should go jetty jump. He's like, no, 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 no. Last time, it really hurt. I was like, it's 
kind of hoping you wouldn't remember that, but okay. Yes, it did, but you're going to get it this time. Here's why. And we, did, we talked through it. And he's like, I'm terrified. I'm really scared. I'm like, that's okay. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be there. Your uncle's going to be there. He was there last time. I know, I know. He was there last time. But it's going to work this time. It's going to work. Ready? And, so, and so he gears up and he has a few false starts. And then eventually he jumps and he lands it and he doesn't hurt himself. And everything is actually okay. The end of this story is everything is okay, which is frankly a relief when it comes to my children. And so at the end of this story, Charlie has tried something and failed and tried again and succeeded. That's resilience. That's what it means to be resilient. I want to unpack that topic a bit tonight because resilience is a, a huge buzzword around at the moment. I don't know if, if you hear it in whatever spheres you're in, whether, you know, your, your workplace, your, your community, your whatever, schools, universities, anything. But resilience is a word I hear all the time. We want resilient children. We, I do, hence the jetty jumping. We want resilient parents and we want resilient adults. We want resilient communities. We want a resilient economy. Frankly, we want resilient plants. My wife wants resilient plants. Isn't that right, honey? We haven't found any quite resilient enough yet, but we're, we're working on that. <laughs> but we're not really getting it. We're getting this concept spoken to us again and again and again, but I'm not seeing a great deal more resilience around us. What we are, in fact, getting is a more and more anxious culture. We are the most anxious generation of all time. And when I say we, I'm talking about all of us alive. I'm not just trying to pick on the Gen Zs or anything here. There is an anxiety pervading our culture. Gen Zs are the first ever generation to believe that they'll be worse off than the generation before them. Everyone else has had an optimism. Now, the truth is they probably won't be based on the way everything's trending at the moment. But that, that's the pervading belief, and that speaks to the anxiety deep within our culture. So what do we do about that? How do we find a cure for that anxiety? How do we build resilience? Because the thing about resilience that makes it unique to these, these other ideas that we're working with um, over these last four weeks and talking about as a future of encounter is resilience is the only one that requires failure. You can't be resilient until you're resilient. You can't be resilient until you've been tested and seen that you've failed and overcome. But we don't like failure much. We give out participation certificates for everything. Recently, I went to a school assembly to see my son purportedly get an SRC badge, which he was not given. Instead, I sat and watched about 75 other people's children receive confidence awards. And I'm glad they're confident, but the, man, that's a lot of confidence awards. Like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, every third person, and the other kids are basically like, I'll get one next time. They, they know how this works. We're becoming this sort of culture where we want to reward the idea of resilience rather than actual resilience. So what do we do about that? What do we do about that? What do we do about this idea that we're not a resilient generation? Because I think this, I think a resilient generation is a generation that takes the storms of life and rides them through to the other side, as opposed to a fragile generation, which takes the highs of life and chooses to view them as storms. We're not being a resilient generation, we're being a fragile one. And I think fragility comes in a couple of different ways. And, and as I share about this, this might start to, start to tick over in you, and it might even be something that's going on in your own life. 
Here are two major inabilities to be resilient I see. The first I would call soft fragility. Soft fragility. Now, people with a soft fragility are generally really kind, really gentle, really empathetic people. Good qualities, right? These are qualities we want to see in human beings. However, they have the kind of fragility that when times get hard, if they get buffeted by the winds of their life, they just get crushed. They just get pressed down. They come up against trouble and they collapse. They collapse into a heap. They get a gut punch from life, and instead of getting up, they get pushed further down, and they're often crippled by anxiety. And often, and this is where it gets toxic, there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's healthy to identify our anxiety. Where it gets toxic is where we ask to be affirmed in that becoming our identity. Knowing your anxiety and naming it and and looking at it head on to push through it, that's resilience. Asking for it to become our identity is when it becomes toxic. And so this is what we can become when we have this soft sense of fragility. But the problem is they, they believe that living in this anxiety is a kind of identity that allowed, has allowed them to endure. And so they, they become vampires for empathy themselves. They're like, well, no, 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 look at me, though. I've, I'm anxious. There's a diagnosis and everything. Help me. Look, Affirm me in that. And so we do because we want to be kind, but we're not changing anything. And we're not helping them become resilient. And that is the issue there. And they believe they're resilient because they've endured in the midst of a crisis. But mostly they're anxious. Not resilient, just anxious. That's soft fragility. Now, hard fragility, these people can be a bit harder to spot. Because hard fragility people appear like they've got it all together. They're often very confident, often got big egos. If you ask them what's going on in their lives, they can tell you exactly what's going on in their lives. They can tell you down to the T. Go, yep, this is going on, this is going on. You go, oh, is everything okay? Everything's fine. I've got it under control. It's not a problem. It's also not a coincidence that I'm putting on more of a masculine voice for this because this tends to be the way men lead. They're very, very in control until something happens that hits them for six, and then suddenly they're not in control at all, and they have no idea what to do about it, but all they know is they have to get back in control. Because hard, fragile people, like anything that is hard and fragile and you drop, they shatter. What they know shatters. So they've been going along and everything's been going fine, and they lose their job and they shatter, and so they gather up control whatever way they can. Sometimes they turn to addictions. Sometimes they buy a new sports car. Sometimes they start an affair. Either way, They're telling everybody, my life's under control. I've got it together. And when anyone questions the decisions being made within this emotional tsunami going on within them, they get very angry, very defensive. And they think they're resilient because they've gone through a hard time. But what they actually are is angry. They are just angry people. Maybe you know people like that, where they seem fine until they're under pressure, and then suddenly they're angry. Or they seem fine until they're under pressure and suddenly they're anxious. These are the ways we get drawn and we can't know what we are until we're under pressure. This is the thing about being resilient. You can't know until you're under pressure, until you fail. So if uh, anxiety becomes an identity for people who have soft fragility, control becomes an identity for those who have hard fragility. But really it's about anger. Anger is the true identity there. So how do we become resilient disciples. And what do we actually mean by that at Encounter Church? Well, I've got three things. Let's just break down this phrase, developing. When we talk about developing, it's that discipleship is a process. You don't just start as a disciple. In fact, you don't even finish, which for the control freaks in a room 
can be pretty daunting. You don't ever become a disciple in full. You are always on a journey of discipleship. It is a process. And so that means whenever you walk into this space and you're pressing into God wherever that starts, we are here for the journey. We're here for that process because we're all in that process one way or another. None of us have reached the goal, but we're all on the journey towards that. That's what discipleship as a process is all about. So we commit to that. We don't expect that anyone's already arrived because we're not culturally equipped to be resilient. We're culturally equipped to be angry or anxious. So we're committed to developing people towards resilience, out of anger, out of anxiety, towards resilience. But what do I mean by resilience then? Well, I'm defining resilience here as the capacity to overcome and still have joy on the other side. There's a difference between being jaded and being resilient. Those are not the same thing. I think sometimes people think if they've gone through the other side of something and they're still standing, they're resilient. Not really. Sometimes you're just angry, anxious, jaded, bitter. Resilience is when you come through the other side and you are healthier. The brokenness has caused something stronger on the other side. So in resilience, you've got to outlast pain and trial and trouble. You can't let adversity define your identity. And truly resilient people find new life after hardship. And what about disciples? What do we mean by disciples? We mean lifelong, mature followers of Jesus. Because there is a big difference if you're here for the first time and, and you don't have many experiences with church. Maybe this is the first time you've ever stepped in a church. And your experience of church is mostly what you've heard in the media, which is unfortunate, to say the least. But let me tell you, there's a huge difference between going to church and following Jesus. One's about religion, it's about a box set of rules that you fit into. The other is about relationship, following a saviour, following a master, becoming actually an apprentice in the way of following Jesus. This is what we're about. That's what it means to become a disciple. So disciples are people who don't just add church to the weekly calendar. They centre their lives around the person and work and identity of Jesus, and the rest of their life flows out from that, including church, including their work, including their sports, their families, their hobbies. Everything comes out of the love they have found in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. So tonight, I want to go back to that passage we were talking about in a second in John and unpack what Peter has to teach us about discipleship and about resilience but you might want to know, what are we actually doing as a church about helping you become a resilient disciple? It's a very good question, because we cannot make you a resilient disciple in a single message. I am not that good. What we are doing, though, is this next series is all about five different ways, five different things, five different processes you can put in your life to move towards resilience, emotional health, and spiritual health. That's what Faith for Exiles is all about. So for the next five weeks, I just want to invite you, exactly like Jem said, plug in for those five weeks. But for now, join with me. Let's jump to John chapter 1. As Jared read earlier, to help us unpack and understand what resilience means for us as followers of Jesus. If you've got a Bible, tick it across with you. If not, jump onto your digital Bible. I'm always a big bat for people reading their own scriptures while I'm, read, while I'm preaching because you're going to get more out of the Word of God than you'll ever get from me. So that's fine. Read your Bibles. It's good. So let's dig into Peter's story. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. You're probably familiar with Peter anyway. He was the first disciple, probably the most famous disciple. You might know him as St. Peter, that big cathedral in North Adelaide, St. Peter's Cathedral. That's what it's named after, Peter the Disciple. And Peter was a fascinating guy. He was the first one called by Jesus, and he is the most passionate 
zealous, on-fire disciple you could possibly imagine. He's kind of the one that everyone else looks to for leadership because he's that guy who's first one to put his hand up for leadership. He's like, I've got it. Let's go. Follow me. I've got it. He comes out of this fishing background, which means he's this earthy, salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. He knows resilience. He's been out on the waters. He's seen the storms, and he's come out the other side, and Jesus calls him to follow him, and it turns his life upside down. And so Peter begins to follow Jesus, and and it takes him a long time to discover the story of his identity. He's called to follow Jesus, and then he has this big moment where Jesus is asking these questions about identity. And in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament in the Bible, we read this, and he asks his disciples, he said, hey, who do all the crowds say that I am? It's, it's the BC version of, am I trending on Twitter? And he throws that out to his disciples, and they say, well, a lot of people say you're, you're like one of the prophets, like Jeremiah. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. Jeremiah was a big deal. And some others say, well, they, others think you're Elijah come again. They're like, well, that's an even bigger deal. He was an even bigger name in Israel's history. Some other people think you're John the Baptist. And they're like, well, that's weird. We're cousins. We're a year in age. We've met in person. Kind of weird that they think I'm John the Baptist, but sure, whatever. Everyone's got an opinion. And then he stops and he turns to his disciples and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Because quick time out, Jesus never had an identity crisis. He doesn't need his identity affirmed by anybody. He has always known who he is and whose he is and who he belongs to. What he wants to know is have his disciples caught it. Have they got it? So he throws it to his disciples and only one of them, only Peter has the guts to say, you are the son of God which was as wild a concept then as it is to hear those words today. If you were to turn to somebody that you've traveled with for three years as a friend, as a brother, as a leader, and say, actually, I don't just think you are wise. I think you are the son of God. It would sound just as crazy back then as it would now. And Jesus looks at him. Peter has correctly identified who he is. And he says, let me tell you something. Everybody's been calling you Simon. That's your name. I'm going to give you a new identity. Your name now is Peter, which means a rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build the church, and it will last forever. And so Peter takes this identity. He's like, this is incredible. It is his big moment. Slight issue. After that, he has a series of screw-ups because he is a hothead. He dives in wholeheartedly. I really relate to Peter, frankly. He dives into things wholeheartedly. See, Peter who's just been told he's the rock of the church, then goes on to be publicly insulted by Jesus, to then claim that he's the most devoted of all the disciples, which is a big call to make in front of all the other disciples. Then he cuts off a man's ear in anger. And then tellingly, he denies knowing Jesus three times. And the last time, he's basically being queried by a waitress, and he loses his mind and starts swearing in front of a whole group of people. And Jesus just turns and looks at him from across the room where he's in chains being interrogated, but the one being calm under pressure is Jesus. And the one who has braved the stormy seas, who has traveled with Jesus for three years, who should be the resilient disciple, is breaking down when a teenage girl asks him if he knows Jesus. And Peter breaks down in tears and he flees into the night. And this is the end Because Jesus goes on to be crucified by the Romans. They take him and string him up on a cross, and he dies on that cross. And when he dies, after Peter's denial, a part of Peter dies too. He goes, that's it. Everything I poured my life into for the last three years was a lie. And then something happens. 
Something unexpected to everybody except Jesus. Even the people that studied scripture didn't see this coming. Jesus rises physically from the dead. He rises and defeats the grave. And again, it would have sounded just as wild back then as it does now. He defeats the power of the grave. And when he does that, death becomes just a necessary speed bump on the way to what was to come. He defeats all the negative powers that come with that. He defeats all of Peter's issues. And Peter suddenly has this vision and he says, I, I have a chance here. What I thought was dead is alive. What I thought was fake is real. I can live in a resurrection. And that's what Jesus was calling him to. And this is what happens to Peter. Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene and some other women. He appears to the disciples together. He appears to the disciple Thomas. He performs many miracles that he can only perform if he's physically resurrected. And then finally we come to this. Cooking breakfast on a beach, calling the fishermen in, after a catch of fish, to eat the fish he's already prepared for them. And they gather around, and they're all looking at each other going, we know this is Jesus, and we all are doing that thing where we want to ask, but we're not going in because we know it's Jesus. So Peter and Jesus invites them to eat. And three times, he then turns to Peter in front of all the other disciples. And he gently asks him, Peter, do you love me more than these? Three times. Again, do you love me? Do you love me? The question is, these what? These other disciples, these fishing gear that we used to fish, this ministry you've given me, the world around me? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. All of that. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Everything. Do you love me more than everything? And Peter says, yes, Lord. You know I love you. See, Peter was done. Jesus' death had ended him, but the resurrection brought Peter new life. And the resurrection will bring you and I new life if we let it too. See, this is what happened. Jesus' resurrection brings Peter's resurrection. From dead, from down and out to alive. And it happens in these three different ways. The first resurrection is one of his identity. Because Peter was convinced that Jesus was the son of God, but only the resurrection could prove that to him. He's not an idiot. None of these disciples are idiots. They're fishermen. You don't get a fish unless you feel the fish in your hands, unless you feel on the end of your rod in your nets. You know then that it's real. You can't eat imaginary fish. You can't worship a fake, non-resurrected Jesus. And so the disciples were looking for that. But when Jesus rises from the dead, Peter's sense of identity is confirmed. He is a follower of Jesus. He is Peter, just like Jesus said. He's named and known by Jesus. And he would never be shaped or his identity never be made known by anybody else. Only Jesus could do that. It was the great gift he gave Peter. Your identity is in me and I will name you so you know it. That's the first resurrection of identity. The second resurrection for Peter is a resurrection of his character. See, Jesus asked him three times in company, which feels like bad manners. He says, do you love me more than these? Three times. I think there's a few different reasons he does this. The first is just to remove the shock and awe, like you're sitting with your resurrected king, your resurrected God. There is a bit where they're just like, is this, is this, is this happening? Pinch me. Pinch me. Not that hard. All right, it's happening. So he wants to get past the shock and awe. And then, and then he gets to the point where he's like, I, I, I want you to answer at a deep level. 
I want you to hear me and really listen to what I'm saying. Jesus says it three times. Often in the Hebrew, when somebody says something three times, uh, in the Old Testament in particular, if you ever read that, they're not really saying it three times. They're saying it one time really, really loudly. They're like, catch what I'm saying. Jesus wants Peter to hear what he's saying. Do you love me more than these? And the third time, the third reason, the real, real deep reason I think Jesus has done this to Peter he wants Peter to know how fully forgiven he is. Because three times Peter denies him in public. Three times Jesus gives him an opportunity for redemption in public. Jesus wasn't trying to embarrass him. Jesus was trying to help him understand how fully restored he was. The depth of forgiveness God has given you is unbelievable. I just think that might be something people need to hear tonight. God is here to forgive. He's not here to hold grudges. He's not here to be angry. He's not anxious about how you're performing. He's here for forgiveness for you. Jesus doesn't just bring him back to life. He restores his identity and character. And the final thing he does is to restore his sense of purpose. See, Peter was given a mission. I will build my church on you. But if Jesus is dead, what does the church matter? The church is irrelevant if Jesus is dead. But if Jesus is alive, well, that changes everything for everyone If Jesus is alive, that becomes something we have to take really seriously. And so Peter sees the resurrected Jesus. Jesus resurrects his sense of identity, his sense of character, and his sense of purpose, and re-implants in him the mission to build the church of God. And we are here today in 2020 in Australia because an Israeli fisherman said yes to Jesus more than 2,000 years ago. That's when resilience kicks in. Peter finds his identity, he finds his character, he finds his purpose in the resurrection of Christ, and he was reborn and made new as the head of the church. So what does this have to do with developing resilient disciples, you might be wondering? Everything. Everything. Because resilience is resurrection. You cannot be resilient unless something has happened to stop you. You have to die a tiny death. You have to come up against an event that is out of your control, that you don't know what to do with, that you run straight into and it stops you in your tracks and a part of you dies, the part of you that is in control of your emotions or in control of your surroundings, something dies and the only way to become resilient is to be resurrected back into life. And the model Jesus gives us and the big mistake we all make about Jesus is he didn't come to take bad people and make them good. He came to turn dead people people and bring them back to life. God is not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. God is not a God of the bad. He's a God of the alive, the resurrected. He is a resurrected God and he's come to bring resurrection life for you and for me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not about being good. It's about knowing whose you are, where your identity is found and in that we find new life. That's what baptism is. Tonight we see people in a minute, they're going to go and get baptized. They're going to say some promises about what it means to them. And you will see them go under and it symbolizes death and come up symbolizing life. They will all come up, I swear. They will, they will come up alive in Christ in a way they've never known before, in a freshness, in a newness, in a resurrection they've never had before because Christ is doing a new work in them, Amen. This is what Jesus did in Peter. 
and what is doing enough. Because the problem with resilience is we are basically coming to people with problems and giving them the same answers we always have. See, back in the day, if somebody came and said, I'm feeling anxious, they would just say, get over it. You'll be right. Move past it. Now, if somebody comes and they say, I'm feeling anxious, we're like, wow, that is awful. And I'm here for you with that. And you're going to get through the other side. Good luck. It's like, hang on. Did you basically just say she'll be right, but you just use more empathetic language? <laughs> you did. You did. And that's the thing. And part of the problem is whatever place we are in, and I, I just want people with anxiety to know how deeply, deeply I empathize with you. If you have depression, if you have anxiety, these are real. They are treatable. They are prayable. And we are with you, not just when you get to the other side, but on the entire journey as you move that way. But the model Jesus gives us is not a get over it model. It's a you will find new life in me. You can put this to death. This sense of anxiety, this sense of anger, put them to death. Pick up my life. Pick up my life. Pick up the salvation I'm bringing you. Pick up the hope I'm bringing you. Pick up the joy I am bringing you. Let me model new life for you. That is the gift Jesus brings because the resurrection of Jesus shapes us as resilient disciples. It brings us new identities, new character, new purpose. It shapes our entire eternity, friends. Who you are is found in the resurrection. Now, there is a Bible passage I absolutely love from the, the letter that Paul wrote to this church in Galatia. It's called Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I absolutely love it. And it is a verse that brings new meaning to you when you realize that we're walking in a resurrected life, following a resurrected king. It goes like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's a big statement. Christ died in the most painful, humiliating way imaginable. And we are saying we are crucified like that. We die like that. And Paul goes on to write, he says, so I'm still living, so figurative. <laughs> it is no longer I who live. It's actually Jesus, the Savior, living in me. That's the new creation I am. That's why we're made right with God. God sees the image of his son, Jesus Christ, perfect, flawless, righteous in our place. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me, which means the life I now go about leaving here in the flesh, here on earth, I don't live in my own power or my own strength. I don't just get on with it. I don't just try and overcome based on what I can do. I live it by faith in the power of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he's done in me and what he is doing in me. There is a future hope in Jesus. That means we know we win the victory when we focus on what Jesus has done in our lives and is doing, he's doing a resurrection work. Resilience is resurrection. If your identity, church, is built on your excuses, when trouble comes, you'll be crushed. And if your identity is built on your sense of control, when trouble comes, you will shatter. But if your identity is built on Jesus, when trouble comes, you will face the truth, you will die the small death that trouble always is, and you will be made alive on the other side because your trust isn't on your own capacity to pick up and carry on. It's on what Jesus has done in you and for you already. I just want to take a moment tonight because some of you are hearing all this and you're like, sure, <laughs> great. And I, I get that, I really do. And you're saying, I... That might seem true, but, but how? It starts with a small death 
pretty big death actually in our own spirit, where we say, I, I want to trust that Jesus, you are the way, the truth and the life. In fact, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's living that resurrection life for us first. What does that mean? It might mean that it's time for you tonight to choose to give your life to Jesus. I use that word very specifically, give. You take everything, like I said before, you give it to Jesus, put it to death, and you receive instead new life. He says, give me your burdens. Give me your pain. Give me your struggles. I'll trade them in for new life, new health, redemption, resurrection. You will live with peace. You'll live with joy, with patience as you rest in me. And the key is to die to ourselves, to stop trying so hard and receive the grace and forgiveness of God. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We'd love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.